0: Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts. And on the episode for today, John Caritas, Acton's own director of communications and the executive producer of Radio Free Acton, speaks with Aaron Rhodes, who's an international human rights activist based in Hamburg, Germany. They'll be talking about Aaron's new book, The Debasement of Human Rights. Where does the notion of human rights come from, and how can we better defend it? Then after that, I'll be talking with Stephen Smith, who's a professor of economics at Hope College here in Holland, Michigan. Stephen and I will be talking about the new North American Trade Agreement, USMCA, which is now replacing NAFTA. What are the main differences between the two and what benefits can we look for? If you're looking for any articles, resources, books, or more mentioned in the episode today, you can check them all out in our show notes, posted every Wednesday at blog.acton.org.
1: You're listening to Radio Free Acton, and today we're going to be talking to Aaron Rhodes, author of a new book from Encounter, The Debasement of Human Rights, How Politics Sabotage the Ideal of Freedom. Aaron is a human rights activist and an advocate for the reform of international human rights law and institutions. He was executive director of the International Helsinki Federation for Human Rights for 14 years and is president of the Forum for Religious Freedom Europe. We're talking to Aaron today by phone. He's in Hamburg, Germany. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron.
2: Thank you very much, John.
1: You know, I'd like to start with a news item, if I may, to put a little current context on this whole question. Uh, You may have seen the item uh, almost two weeks ago, President Donald Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, announced that the U.S. will cut funding for the office of the U.N. human rights chief. Bolton basically explained this as uh, losing patience with the U.N. human rights bureaucracy, which seems to uh, focus on issues that have become deeply politicized. And you talk about this in your book. You say that. American discontent with the human rights agenda at the United Nations has led to calls for withdrawing from human rights institutions and for defunding the U.N. itself. So here we are. Uh, I think we've finally gotten to the point where official U.S. government frustration with the U.N. human rights bureaucracy has led to this point. What's your reaction? Well,
2: I have mixed feelings about it because... um, some of the things that the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights does are, are very worthy, and some others are are represent a kind of hubris that they're getting into a lot of issues that they don't belong in, and they are um, um, promoting uh, political ideologies uh, and 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 so on. And, and 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 I think it depends on what you know. What are they cutting? because does the i don't under, i don't know the facts here so i'm a little bit um, cautious in my response uh the the uh, is the is the american donation earmarked towards certain activities and uh, and not others um i wouldn't want to see, like i said this 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 office does do some worthy things and and it and it should be encouraged to do worthy things and it should be discouraged for doing the things that that don't really help uh freedom
1: yeah well i think this is a uh, blunt force move, Bolton said U.S. officials would calculate how much of the U.S. annual budget goes to the Rights Office and the Human Rights Council, a 47-nation U.N.-backed Assembly of Nations, and reduce its outlay by that amount. So mm-hmm. I don't think they're trying to to pinpoint what they're going to defund. They're basically saying, okay, we throw our hands up, we're going to cut it by X amount.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think another thing, and I actually I've said this a couple of times in in context in Washington I was speaking there a few times in the in the past several months and and I said that uh the withdrawal from the Human Rights Council it's it's uh, probably a good thing but it should be accompanied by a positive initiative with regard to human rights so that the United States should do more for human rights than it's doing uh, under the, in this in this administration and and they and they shouldn't um they shouldn't give up the idea of human rights just because the way it's interpreted in the United Nations is incorrect. Uh, I think they ought to take that money that they're withdrawing from the Human Rights, uh, the, the Office of the High Commissioner, and they should use it in a positive way to promote uh, civil society and to, to, to promote uh, natural rights.
1: Well, I mean, really, that is the the uh, one of the main uh, a main thesis of your book. In that you you show in excruciating detail how the human rights uh, project has been deeply politicized, and you point all the way back to the UN Declaration of Human Rights. But you also say that this is too important just to throw your hands up and walk away from it. And one of the one of the observations you make uh, in your book is that, and I quote you here. I quote you here now. <laughs> The acceptance of rational rules that protect everyone's basic rights was understood to be the foundation of freedom in society, and the vision of freedom gave hope and life to human rights work. Freedom would allow citizens to build fair and just societies if they had the strength and the will to do so. So tell us why, tell us how you think the human rights movement or project can get back on track what measures would you like to see that would begin to reorient it back towards its its foundations and natural rights and i'm going to get to that here in a minute but where do we start we, we have to
2: start by recognizing what are what are human rights and what aren't human rights and we have to it, it, we have to start on the conceptual level because the concept of human rights has become so so debased as i say in, in the title of the book and and so we have to re- re-educate ourselves about human rights, I think. That, that's the first step. And um, and that's why I think uh, when you think, you know, what, what could the, the American government do? The American government should do what the, the Reagan administration did, uh, which is to talk about the idea of human rights <laughs> and talk about freedom and, and fully associate uh, the promotion of human rights with, pro- with, with, with protecting uh, individual freedom. I think this is the first step. Um, The uh, international human rights system is failing uh, today. Uh, This is very clear if you simply uh, look at uh, the the fate of freedom around the world. More and more uh, countries are dictatorships. There are fewer and fewer free societies. It's been going on. uh, this, this, This trend has been going on for about 15 years in fact it it's been going on in my estimation since the idea of human rights uh became so uh so big and so dis- so so contradictory this was in the early 1990s and ever since the idea of human rights has become uh, dysfunctional uh human rights themselves have you know people the, 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 people since this time people don't have have uh, failed to 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 be able to to enjoy their human rights. So we have uh, more and more human rights, and we have less and less freedom.
1: Yeah, and you you describe um, how th- uh, human rights are now being interpreted within a progressive political framework, so that a an increasing uh, number of uh, needs or wants have now become morphed into rights, such as uh, a right to food, a right to water, health, the primacy of human rights over international trade, investment, and intellectual property regimes. And a lot of these are being advanced and affirmed by countries such as Algeria, Brazil, China, Egypt, Iran, Pakistan, South Africa, at the same time, as you point out, uh, there's a, been a, a retreat from political liberty in in many parts of the world, including some very significant countries. So the advocacy for human rights begins at that individual level, does it not?
2: Well, of course it does, but but I mean this is you know I I think the that human rights are best protected by by, by democratic liberal states. Um, not internationally, uh, the the idea that there's you of know, universal human rights doesn't mean that it has to be promoted in, a, in an institution that in which all states of the world are, are members because many, many of those states don't believe in human rights. And this is this profound naivete that has <clears throat> uh, installed itself in the international human rights system. That, uh, that these dictators and these oppressive societies, and today we're talking about China, Iran, all of the Islamic theocracies, Russia, all of the autocratic states of Africa, uh, most of the states of the world, in fact. To, to, to think that these, uh, these, the, 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 the cliques that run these countries have any belief in human rights at all is a joke. Uh, we have to adjust to this fact. And, and when we have them you know, running, running the international human rights system, which is what you get in an international organization, you don't really get the promotion of human rights. You get a, a kind of fraud. Uh, but this, this fraud, uh, people like to buy into it because it makes them feel better and it, it gives them the sense that, that, um, that all these efforts are, are going someplace positive. They're not going someplace positive. And so we have to do it differently. And I think uh, in the future, by the way, you know, it's not that I want uh, the the Human Rights Council to fail or the UN to fail. These things are happening. This is an empirical fact. Um, and so something what Bolton is doing, uh, the, what President Trump is doing, this is not, uh, you know, something they dreamed up. They're just going along with something that's happening by itself. A kind of There's a natural failure going on to, to, to in the international community. And I think in the future, countries like the United States, and I hope the United States you know, fully supports human rights, are going to do this on, bi- on a bilateral basis. They're going to do it outside the United Nations.
1: Right, and nothing is stopping us from continuing to do that. As you, as you mentioned um during the Cold War in the later stages, of course, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, for one, was a champion of uh, human rights and continued to speak boldly about it. Now, you, you talk about the liberal democracies. I'd like you to go back to uh, where you root human rights in uh, the Western tradition of natural rights, which really undergirds basic individual freedoms and in liberal democracies. Talk about how... Um, going back to the understanding of natural rights as far back as the Greek Stoics, Aristotle, Cicero, up through the Christian tradition, how that really created the ground for what we know as human rights today. Well, I mean, if you
2: look at a, at a textbook definition of human rights, you talk, they, they talk about you know, human rights are, are inherent rights. So uh, everybody, you know, this is. The, I, I think this is a kind of cliche now. <laughs> um, I, I don't think um, the right to, you know, employment counseling, which is, you know, what what the what you find in the international co- covenant on civil and political on on uh, economic and social rights, that's not an inherent right. That's not a universal right. So uh when we think about uh the 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 human rights tr- truly universal human rights we 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 have to talk about a a rather narrow range of rights that tr- are truly universal and
1: you say they're simple and they're simple to uh affirm
2: yeah this is this is they have to be simple um because most you know true real truths are quite simple
1: and universal across all cultures then
2: that's right and and um, they're they're based on they're inherent to creation, and I mean I think the the beauty of the idea of natural rights is that it's a it's it's something that religious people and people who who don't you know claim to be religious I think really all people are religious whether they're atheism is a religion as far as I'm concerned but but all people can can understand this because because, uh, uh, it's consistent with with theological principles, and it's also consistent with with respect for nature. The only real stumbling block occurs when people don't believe in nature, (laughs) when they think that everything, you know, this is a very arrogant idea that everything we have, we created ourselves. There are different versions of natural rights based on different, different traditions, but they all converge with the very simple idea of rights that are in, that, that we have by virtue of being human, inherent rights. And the problem with, with international human rights is that the socialists and the progressives tacked on welfare entitlements, onto this idea of of natural rights.
1: Right, and that also is because in part they have a deep investment in these global political structures like the United Nations, like the European Union and other uh, transnational uh, political uh, constructs that um, they've shifted their allegiance to these things rather than to something more fundamental and simpler like who is the human person and what are the natural rights that in here and there?
2: Yes, I think this is it. And, you know, when you think about natural rights, uh, you think about the importance of of moral agency of the individual and you, and you think about um, moral responsibility and, um, and, and the responsibilities that come with freedom. And the problem with the economic and social rights is that this is, this is about victimization, dependency. It's about what has happened to you. This is what it does. This is what human rights does. Human rights is not about goals. It's about freedom. So it's, polit- it's a politically
1: neutral term. It's, it really is. And it creates space for you to develop things in civil society and to, to debate these ideas and to engage in the political process freely without having it all predetermined um, from the United Nations or some other body.
2: You know, uh, you, you said at, at the beginning that, um, uh, that you, you had gotten interested in human rights again after reading my book, and I'm very grateful for that. But um, I think that, you know, if, if you, if you have, had felt discouraged about human rights, you're certainly not alone, and that's one of the big problems today is this cynicism about the term, about the idea, especially among uh, conservatives. That's why I think we should uh, reclaim human rights, and I'm not talking as as a you know I, I don't think classical liberalism is really a political ideology. It's a belief in process and freedom, uh, and it's freedom of choice, and, and it's about individual rights. And so, uh, and this is this is what human rights is about. And and uh, and I think it's we have to reassociate human rights with this philosophy of of, of classical liberalism.
1: Well, okay, we're running short on time, but I could go on for a long time with this. This is a really good book. I found it fascinating. And what I want to thank you for is helping me understand why the stakes are so high here and why we have to take the human rights project seriously. I've been talking with Aaron Rhodes, author of The Debasement of Human Rights, How Politics Sabotage the Ideal Freedom from Encounter Books, Aaron, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Okay, it's my pleasure, John.
0: You see it in everything, from political rhetoric to Hollywood films. Business is the bad guy. But is this really true? From the smallest mom-and-pop shop to the largest e-commerce storefronts, businesses are an essential pillar to a free and flourishing society. Without healthy, sustainable businesses, where would our society be? Join us at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids on October 18 for an upcoming one-day conference where Acton is pleased to bring together entrepreneurs and business leaders to explore the moral good that business does. Through panel discussions, interviews, and a luncheon, we'll look at topics such as the theological underpinnings of work, the meaning and dignity of work, the role of the entrepreneur, and more. You can register for this event at acton.org events. Mexico and Canada make up America's third and first largest market exports for agricultural products. In 2017, this made up 28% of our food exports, supporting more than 325,000 jobs. On September 30th, negotiations for a new North America trade agreement wrapped up, now being dubbed the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement or USMCA. Trump justified this change by stating that NAFTA has a bad connotation and the U.S. has been hurt by NAFTA in the past. He hopes that this new trade agreement will support agricultural exports here in the U.S. I'm Caroline Roberts, and you're listening to Econ Quiz, an occasional segment here on Radio Free Acton, where we invite an economist onto the show to ask them a few questions about the latest econ issue. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Smith, professor of economics at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Stephen, thank you for joining me, and thank you for taking the time to drive all the way out to the studio for us.
3: A real pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: First, can you explain a bit more about NAFTA's history? Trump says that the U.S. has been badly hurt by NAFTA, by past trade agreements. What's motivating him to make the change?
3: You know, I think it's fair to say that for a lot of economists— uh, his motivation is pretty opaque. The, the the original NAFTA agreement, which emerged as an initiative of the Clinton administration now more than twenty five years ago, was designed as much for political reasons and an important political reasons as it was for economic reasons. Here we had uh, Mexico, major U.S. neighbor, large growing country, uh, right at right at our doorstep. Um, significant immigration uh, issues uh, between our two countries. And there was a lot of political wisdom in cementing a more constructive economic relationship between our nations. The potential to uh, increase trade reduce, uh, by reducing tariffs and, and trade barriers offered uh, the potential for really significant mutual benefit and uh, increased investment flows both ways, but mostly from the U.S. into Mexico. Uh, with greater protections on that, uh, all that looked really attractive. But uh, economically, but the but the real payoff here would be uh, a more uh, would would be the, the outcome of promoting prosperity in in Mexico and therefore hopefully more stability in Mexicans' uh, politics and uh, and a prosperous neighbor who would be more like an ally of the U.S. than Mexico had been up till then.
0: Do you think that this new trade agreement? Does it reflect protectionist policies, and if so, how will this change then be beneficial for the U.S.?
3: Well, those are those are really big questions, and may, may I start with a, a little context here? You know, in the actual agreement itself, as things played out, I think NAFTA fell far short of what was claimed for it in terms of the economic benefits both for Mexico and the United States, uh, but. Uh, overall, I think politically, it did deliver some of the benefits that were hoped for it. And in that in that context, relatively small economic gains uh, for both countries, but but certainly not any major economic harms. In that context, Trump's labeling NAFTA as you know the quote the worst trade deal ever un- unquote is uh, surprising to say the least. It's hard to think of. Really, why it would be called that, and and I think it reflects Trump's general deep antipathy antipathy to trade per se. He's hardly had a, a, a good word to say about trade at all in his presidency or in his campaigning, and he seems very fixated on on deficits. He seems to think that deficits, trade deficits, really harm a, a country, and um, the the fact that we have. Uh, frequently had a trade deficit with Mexico seems, on its face, to him to be a reason to uh, reason to dislike the deal.
0: So, if we could boil down the difference between NAFTA and USMCA, just pointing out the main differences between the two, what are they?
3: Well, I, I think here there is, in fact, some some good news uh, from a, a mainstream economics point of view. Uh, the differences are small. And that's probably a really good thing. It, it had Trump followed through with his with what he claimed he wanted to do with, with NAFTA, uh, the United States and Mexico and Canada have in fact now really dodged a bullet. So the changes in it are are all really small; they're changes in degree and not in character. So, for instance, uh, now uh, in terms of uh, local content that's required to qualify for the reduced tariffs under uh, under NAFTA. Um, in, you know, in the, the new agreement, um, well, we've gone from a 62 and a half uh, percent local content requirement to a 75 percent local content requirement. Local content requirements are problematic. And I could talk about that, that the kinds of things they do are definitely uh, harmful and costly uh, for economies. But that particular change is not is not a big deal. Uh, and, and I might add that some of the changes are actually potentially on the margins uh, uh, helpful. There's uh, uh, some, some revamped intellectual property rights, rights protection, which is good. Many of the dispute settlement mechanisms have been, have been retained. Uh, that's good. You know, uh, it's probably a good idea that there's now a, a, a sunset clause in the, uh, in the agreement. It's okay to revisit it um, in 16 years' time. Uh, that's yeah, that's all right, that's healthy you know and changes can be made. So uh, uh, you know, um, oh my goodness, compared to com- compared to the the fiery talk that he, that he has used about this up till now, the the actual new agreement honestly looks like a, a very much a status quo agreement.
0: So one of the questions that come up when discussing the differences between the old North American trade deal and the new North American trade deal, is people are prone to ask, so who are the losers and who are the winners? Is this a question that is not wise to ask at this point? Or do you think that on the whole, economists can kind of look... At the weather, so to speak, and be able to predict it.
3: That question is always worth asking, even even if you know on, on balance there's little little change. This agreement definitely helps uh, U.S. automakers. They they might not be helped much, but but it definitely helps them. The rise in in the increase in the local content requirements, and the additional requirement now. That at least 40% of the car, cars and parts made under the new agreement uh, have to be at factories paying a minimum of $16 an hour. Those two things together will tilt auto parts production and automobile production per se towards the United States and away from Mexico. Uh, it, it's not gonna be it's not gonna be a, a full run on, of firms out of Mexico by any means. Uh, Mexican labor productivity has been rising a lot recently, and, and Mexico, a number of factories are going to be able to pay that and make that work. But uh, for new investment in in auto plants in North America and auto parts plants in North America, that's going to tilt firms towards the United States in a way that simply wasn't true beforehand. It's a measure of the U.S.'s power and, and the way Trump really wielded that that power, the big stick that the U.S. has that Mexico agreed to this we would be outraged in the United States if as a condition for uh, trade with us some other country insisted that products be made in factories that paid a minimum of $30 an hour it's really extraordinary that Mexico has agreed to this and and this is very much this is very much a gift to US automakers
0: Earlier you mentioned that there also might be some benefits for intellectual property rights. What does that involve?
3: A, a really interesting side piece of the new treat- treaty is that it'll, it allows sanctioning of, of, a, of a member country if government officials use firms' intellectual property in, in inappropriate ways. Now, there's hardly ever been any cases between Canada the United States and Mexico and the United States regarding inappropriate government use of intellectual property. This would be something like, uh, in order to get a product licensed, a, a firm had to show its patents and show its uh, technological designs to a government agency, and then the government agency turns around and uses that perhaps to help a, a domestic competitor. Well, that, that agreement is that piece of this agreement is clearly aimed at China it's aimed at setting a precedent for having in a trade treaty uh, a, a much more stringent a much more binding way to go after go after governments that force countries to turn over intellectual property as a condition for operating in the country but then uh, it, uh, and, then, and then use that to commercial advantage to promote their own firms. If this, if this sets the stage for more constructive uh, negotiations with, with China, then that might be a good thing.
0: Well, thank you very much, Stephen, for coming in and discussing this with me today. And I look forward to the next time you're on Econ Quiz.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Thank you for listening today. As always, if you like what you hear on this podcast, don't forget to give Radio Free Acton a five-star rating on iTunes. Those ratings really help us out. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton, you can leave us a message at 888-705-4180. Or you can always email us at rfa at actin.org. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.